Paceline is produced by The Cycling Independent, with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at The Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm your host, Patrick Brady, and each week we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. This week is a tandem episode, and my guest is Dave Kasel, one of the men behind a new and cutting-edge aero track frame. The company is called Strom Cycling, and their Kickstarter began running last week, and as of this recording, they are 80% of the way to reaching their goal. I first met Dave when he was the drop bar product manager for Felt Bicycles. He and I interacted a lot because I was writing all of Felt's copy at the time. I quickly came to respect and even admire Dave. He's logical, yet warm, can see the big picture, but doesn't miss a single detail, can tell a great joke, and then rip your legs off. Without further ado, here's my interview with Dave Kiesel. So I see you've got a few questions here, and uh, yeah. so we can talk about that. And essentially, um, you know, I've been involved in the development of track bikes uh, at the Olympic level since 2007, and we worked closely with the U.S. team at that time. And then since then, we've had a, a really a global um, uh, audience for the mm-hmm. products. And that was when I was working for Felt Bicycles. Um, so and Felt came out with a uh, a bike that's really stood the test of time. Pretty amazing. If, for the time, it was one of the few bikes, um, I think the only bike used at the World Cup level that was used for team sprint, team pursuit, pursuit, uh, mass start races. I mean, it was just, it was a one bike do all uh, where a lot of other companies were, um, they'd make a sprint specific bike or a, a pursuit specific bike and oftentimes even a mass start bike on top of that. <clears throat> so the bike that we've made um, mm-hmm. is intended to do all, all things and it's not so much that we've uncovered some secret sauce that allows us to manage all those unique disciplines. It's the UCI has changed their rules on, and they've relaxed them. I mean, I, and, I, and as I recall, this might be the first time they've gone backwards from a, a standpoint of, hey, here's the rules, and, and now we're allowing you to do things that, you know, it'd be as if they introduced the super tuck again or something. It's, they're going back on limitations, uh, which is normally not there. Normally not their way. Yeah, that's not their strong suit. Uh, (laughs) Relaxing Uh, is not a thing they do. And you know, and and uh, we're we're relieved that they're doing it. And in uh, in terms of the shape of the frames, you know, we Mm -hmm. always we've always known that three to one. You know, it it does have some merit in terms of structure, but um, the there's there's definitely challenges in making a sharper, uh, crisper, longer airfoils from a stiffness standpoint, so forth. But um, but the position rule was really the big shocker. Now, um, they've had this position rule where the leading edge of your handlebar can't be further uh, than uh, further ahead of your front axle by more than five centimeters mm-hmm. um, for mass start racing, uh, drop bar, you know, bunch racing. And pretty much everyone that was over five foot four was at that limit. And, and then as 
uh, over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, really uh, what we called the Cam Meyer effect. Uh, Cam was a uh, absolutely uh, ferocious points racer. And um, 3T, uh, Richard McCannish uh, developed this handlebar in uh, an association with two handlebars, actually, with Australia Cycling. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to spend some time working at 3T. And um, he developed a sprint bar, which at mm-hmm. the time was, was revolutionarily narrow. It was 35 centimeters wide. Oh, my uh, gosh. Which was crazy narrow for, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and, and he developed a drop bar, a track handlebar, but it had essentially brake hoods on it. And, uh, right. And, and Cam Meyer used that with like devastating effect. I think he won like three points race world championships out of four or something like that. And, and he would basically crouch down and, and kind of get in a position that quite frankly is very common. Now you see riders with their, their hands kind of rolled over the inside of their brake hoods, yep. elbows, you know, elbows, the same level as their wrists, you know, kind of perched forward in the front of their saddle, head down, and they're just basically in a time trial position. Maybe their arms are a little wider, but, and, uh, and so he used that, uh, to devastating effect. Now the UCI started taking this, this rule, this five centimeter rule, and it really limited the reach of the athletes. So, um, you, like I said, you started seeing, uh, small riders riding, uh, you know, like a five foot seven, five foot eight riders riding 61, 62 centimeter frames just so they could get the reach. They wanted that reach. And the, only, the only way to get the handlebars out that far was to also push the front wheel out that far. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they'd ride with a couple of centimeters of seat post showing their handlebars all, you know, way out front. Um, uh, the UCI also has limitations on the front center. So the measure from the bottom bracket to the front axle, there's a limitation on that. Oh, so that's what keeps them from going with a super slack hand too long. Yeah. Yep. Or, or, or just kicking the head tube angle up. Right. Right. Um, and there's a few other things that have gone, uh, gone on, you know, back when I first started racing bicycles, you know, my first lug steel track bike had one inch, uh, you know, thick walled steel tubing. It was just, <laughs> yeah. uh, this horrific jeton and that's, you know, to make them stiff, they made them thick and yep. to make them, to make them handle quickly, uh, because the bikes were very spongy <laughs> in comparison to a modern bike. Um, the angles were very steep as well. And so I think, I think that bike was 75, 75, 75 seat angle, 75 head angle. Um, so very steep, you know, bike and, and, you know, we all rode 165 cranks. I guess a few guys had a, a maybe 170 crank here or there. Um, everyone was just in a 90 ish gear, 90 inch gear. Um, even at the world cup level, um, you know, the era of like Greg Henderson. So just a generation ago. Uh, he'd race the world championships in a gear and, you know, 94 or 96 inch gear. Um, so there's, uh, now guys are riding, amateurs are riding like 108, 115. It's the sport has changed and the average speed of the racing is so much faster. Um, I heard a, uh, I heard a world-class, uh, athlete describe it as you're basically out there with 20 other guys doing a team time trial, but you're not all on the same team. But if you get out of line, if you get mm-hmm. on a line, you just go backwards. It's, it's, uh, you know, super speedway racing, like an NASCAR, you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you need the draft it, without the draft, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And so the positions from what Cam Meyer was using in 2010 or 2011, they've gone even more radical, even more narrow riders are riding 30 centimeter bars, even 28 centimeter wide handlebars. Um, you know, there, uh, there are several handlebars on the market now, um, that have like sort of fake brake hoods. So you've got something to hang on mm-hmm. on the tops to, yep. uh, to mimic that position. Um, the reach of the bikes has gotten so long. There's a, 
you know, it's not uncommon now with this new UCI rule that they allowed the bars to go from five centimeters in front of the front axle. Now they've granted the same dimension that uh, Kieran and sprint riders have, which was 10. So basically overnight, everyone added five centimeters to their stem length, which, uh, which in many cases, the riders are riding like a 180 stem. It's, it's unreal. The bikes are absurd looking. Uh, and, and so we've made these sort of adaptations, you know, people are riding with their seat jammed all the way forward at, right at five centimeters. And they're basically in a time trial position. Their, their, their arms are, are as if they're in aero bars, although there's no arm rests or anything. They have to just hold <laughs> on. Um, the seats forward, the, the crank arms are short. The, you know, the gear is massive. The average speeds well over 50, 53 K an hour. Um, I think the last, uh, the last nation's cup in Milton, um, I think they averaged 53 K an hour for the scratch race. Uh, you know, so it's just amazing how fast everything has gotten. And, but the bicycles really haven't changed. The geometry hasn't been adapted for this type of, of riding. So, um, so we did that. We, we basically tweaked the geometry. So you're back on a normal stem length, you're back on a front center. That's, that's long. Yes. Uh, cause the UCI needs it to be long. We added that for, for stability and we added that so that, uh, again, the, um, uh, the added reach rather uh, gives you a head angle that still uh, allows the bike to be maneuver- maneuverable and crisp handling. But we don't need to go as steep as 75 degrees anymore. Bikes are so unbelievably stiff and responsive now that, you know, we're not riding one inch steel tubes anymore, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And that brings up the other point is the tube, tube dimensions. Um, the UCI has finally abandoned the requirement that tube dimensions remain three to one. (laughs) Um, so they do have limitations on how wide each tube is. The front triangle has to be 25 millimeters wide, uh, at its narrowest point. Um, the rear triangle, the fork blades, handlebars, things like that need to be a centimeter wide, but they all can fit into this 80 millimeter bounding box. And, um, so because of that, like chain stays, seat stays, fork blades, um, seat posts, they can be eight to one airfoils. Mm. And, and that's, you know, you, if you went to an aeronautical engineer and said, Hey, I want you to make me a glider, um, but use three to one airfoils. They'd say, what's a three to one airfoil. That, that isn't the thing. Like that's right. not a, that's not a shape that you would, if you want to make something aerodynamically efficient, you would never use three to one. It's not, it's not efficient. It, it doesn't generate any lift. It doesn't, it's not low drag in terms of foil. You're basically going to make it as small as you can hide it from the air, like minimize the frontal area. So hide it from whatever your your whatever medium you're riding in, and uh, and hope for the best. Right. But with with eight to one, with eight to one, you can make a glider. You can make the bike sail. Uh, so you know, and and uh, I was very lucky early in my career to work on a triathlon bike that did exactly that. We made you know tube profiles all the way out to eleven to one, and they were designed to perform in a crosswind. Now that was in a triathlon setting where you're going to be riding you know next to an ocean or a big body of water for the most part so there's always going to be this crosswind as you finish the swim and exit out on the bike course um and so we built bikes for that that steady state uh or the, excuse me for that uh that sort of aerodynamic regime mm-hmm. and on the track most world cup uh, events are indoors uh, i think that egypt was a notable exception there's a couple of tracks that have sort of canopies over the outside so you get a little bit of crosswind but it's it's nothing like you see on a triathlon bike and the other thing too is that from a yaw angle standpoint you know we just talked about them racing 50 55k an hour uh sprinting at 70k an hour it's it there's not a lot of yaw uh and so we can really focus on low drag low yaw performance um but even with eight to one you know from a consumer standpoint 
uh, we do know that there's the majority of velodromes, especially in the U.S., they're outdoors. And so we didn't want a bike that was, that was unrideable. You know, we're not trying to make a front disc wheel here. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, event, event specific and uh, condition specific. Um, and so we were able to maintain uh, attachment and performance outdoors, which would be impossible with three to one. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and so that the fork is, is uh, the fork, the head tube, it actually has a stabilizing effect and, um, and it really, uh, it really performs. It really allows the bike to be ridden. Uh, in all regimes, it would really optimize for high speed, low yaw, uh, indoor velodrome use. Um, and that's really just the UCI getting out of our way. Hmm. I noticed that, the the fork, I mean, yeah, it's super thin. It reminds me of the old Schwinn forks, yeah. just much, much wider. Yeah. The Ashtabula forks, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's been a few examples of this over the, you know, and I, and it's not difficult to see when you work in the wind tunnel. And you start to move these foils around, especially if you've got, you know, several examples or if you've got a movable model um, and you're looking at like wheel interaction. Mm-hmm. When, when we were using the smoke wand and, and putting this, um, putting the uh, vaporized ethylene glycol they used to kind of create the smoke trail in the tunnel, it was amazing how much that wheel just tumbles the air around. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a dryer. Even at 30 miles an hour, the airflow at the top of the wheel is, is pushing the air forward, not just the airflow right at the tire, but there's a <laughs> large chunk of air that's just sort of being dragged around, um, in this spinning circle, this swirling, uh, vortex. And so if you put an airfoil right next to that, you're, you're not getting flow on both sides of that, uh, of that fork blade, the, the fork blades are sandwiched up against the wheel. It's only the outside that's getting clean airflow. And even that can be disturbed by the front wheel. Um, and so you'll see sometimes, um, bikes with super, super narrow fork blade spacing. That's because they're really, they're really trying to develop a a shape that's okay. We're just going to let the wind see the wheel and that's it. And everything else, we're going to make it as as small and and hide it as possible. Um, but even, uh, I, I don't think it was zip that actually made the fork, but, um, the old 40 K, uh, U S national record was set on a fork that was like that. I think it was a custom made steel fork. And I believe it was before the three to one rules came into effect because I think it was on a, actually a zip frame. Uh, but it was it was crazy. It was this this box box section, almost like a Yo Eddie Fat Chance, uh, you know, mountain bike fork segmented steel fork. But it was mm-hmm. super wide. And uh, and I think they used the old Zip three thousand one tri spoke. And that's exactly why you want to do that on these molded spoke wheels. There's so much um, as that that big blade passes through the fork blade that pushes all the air out of the way that's in between the fork blade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the air has to go somewhere. Uh, imagine going into, uh, you know, an interior room of your house, your, your bedroom door, or your bathroom door, and try to slam that door shut. Well, right. it's, you know, or a closet door, there's nowhere for the air to go as the, as the, you know, the door will move very, very quickly until right at, it's just about to, to push shut. There's, it's closing off its own escape route. Right. You know, there's nowhere you for that air that to go. You feel that wind coming back towards yeah. you. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, that's kind of what, imagine a five spoke wheel like the Mavic at every time the thing goes around, there's five of those pulses of those, like pushing the air out of the way, you know, and then as the spoke passes through, there's a vacuum, the air's got to fill back in, then it's got to push out of the way. So you get this, uh, you know, that, uh, almost like the, uh, when you're a kid and you talk into a fan to try to sound like Darth Vader, <laughs> you know, same thing. Like that's what the air is doing. It's pulsing uh-huh. in and out of the fork. And, uh, and our fork design has none of that. The air doesn't move. It doesn't, it doesn't pulse in and out, um, of that fork space, the air, the air flows over the fork blades just as it's supposed to. And the air flows over the wheel just as it's intended. And the two, the two regimes don't interact. 
they don't uh, they don't create this huge turbulent effect. I shouldn't say they don't interact, but it's very much minimized. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we were able to do is we were able to take the airflow, and because we're we're running the air over a, a cross section, it's a little over eight to one actually. Um, the, we can actually direct the airflow. We can move it, uh, just like you do on an airplane. Um, you create, uh, you know, you create the airs moving this direction. You move it with the wing, and so it, it goes in that direction. And so the air, the air is kind of pushes the, um, it, it shadows the rider's legs. And mm-hmm. uh, a, a good way to visualize this is you're driving in your car. Maybe have someone else driving. If you're a passenger in a car, put down your window and stick your hand out the window. And everyone's kind of felt the sensation of when my hands open and facing the wind. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of a lot of pressure pushing my hand back, and I turn at ninety degrees, uh, kind of karate chop across the wind. You lose that um, that surface area, and so it's much easier. You don't feel that again. Well, what we've done is we've basically taken a, a side view mirror, you know, and put your hand in front of the side view mirror, and you don't feel anything. It doesn't matter how you turn your your hand, and because we can't do anything about a rider's legs, aerodynamically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we can put socks on them and there's a, you know, there's little tricks that we can do with clothing, but for the most part, they're just big round tubes. That's like the absolute worst shape you can have. Um, <laughs> yep. and so if we can put that in the, in the wake of the fork blade of the air coming off the fork blade and, and direct the air away from the rider's legs, um, it's going to have less disturbed air coming off of it. So the rider gets sort of sheltered. Um, there's other secret sauce going on in the top tube that does the same thing, seat post and seat tube area. Um, that really helps manage the flow of the turbulent air, um, unlike unlike any bike that I've ever been a part of. And this this type of thinking kind of leads me to some of your other questions here. Is uh, you know I'm a I'm a make the donuts guy. I don't I don't do the recipe. You know what I'm saying? At, <laughs> that there are brilliant guys that that study this. Uh, we have a guy that's literally it's an aerodynamicist. That's his that's his job, and he's got much much bigger fish to fry. Uh, than uh, uh, than working on bicycle designs, but he's got the expertise and he's a passionate cyclist. It's the same same thing that sucked us all in, Patrick. We're we're, we're sucked in by the bike, and so whether we're you know we're engineers or marketers or uh, you know digital experts, we, we're stuck in this bike industry because we love that thing so darn much. So he's <laughs> true uh, statement. The the magnet of two wheels has drawn him into this project, and he's devoted uh, I can't even count hundreds of hours of uh, of CFD work. Um, he wrote all the protocol that we went into the, the wind tunnel with, uh, and so did all the testing to get our, our fork shapes and everything that dialed in and proven and really matched what he was looking at in CFD with what we were, uh, what we were seeing on, uh, on the models that we had printed. Uh-huh. Uh, we printed up some full size 3d, uh, 3d models to bring in the tunnel. Uh, and then we brought a whole host of the, the best wheels in the world. Uh, you know, we kind of took a survey of, well, what, what are people using, uh, on a world-class, uh, level? Um, mm-hmm. And then I brought some wheels as well that I, I had tested in my previous roles, uh, working uh, um, as a, um, the leader at Revol when I was working for Specialized. And so I had some background on uh, on what wheels were fast, what wheels were slow, what what made sense, what tire shapes worked worked well, what tires worked well. And so we brought all that with us, and we were we were uh, we were expecting the wheels to be um, unaffected essentially by the fork or the the way that the bike was designed. Um, and we were successful. The, the, it, it, it did exactly what we expected it to do. Um, we were also lucky enough to have uh, some data on um, uh, on some fast bikes uh, outside of the the bike that we brought ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, I have a felt that I've been racing on since two thousand eight, nine, long time. Mm-hmm. 
And then we were able to get a loaner Argon 18, uh, one of the fastest bikes out there as well. And um, so super good data and, uh, and very favorable results against those uh, sort of top bikes that are being raced on now. Uh, and again, it's not, it's not to say those are bad designs. Those bikes were designed with three to one in mind. Uh, right. while, while the handcuffs were so, still on, so to speak. Um, and that's, that's really why I'm, I'm ready to take on this challenge because mm-hmm. yes, there are, you know, teams of engineers at the big bicycle companies that have, uh, hundreds of hours, uh, reams of data. Uh, but all of that's, uh, if they're making UCI bike, it's all three to one. It's all, it's all mostly useless now because the tube shapes we've, we've really just un, uncovered a whole new uncharted territory. And, uh, so everyone's learning. And everyone's uh, kind of on on day one of kindergarten here on uh, on these new rule changes. So we're <laughs> we're excited to be able to be able to be the first ones to really kind of capitalize on it on it and get our bikes out into the world. The pace line is underwritten by Shimano North America. That means they help us pay for software and hosting and the M and M's in our dressing rooms. Shimano are also nice enough to let us talk about them in our own voices and from our own experiences. For example, I did a lot of research on Shimano road wheels when I was putting together complete bike packages when I was at 7 Cycles. We turn to Shimano wheels because they're rock solid, affordable, and readily available. The wheel market is full of fantastic options. Shimano's wheels often fly under the radar. You should really check them out. They have killer carbon fiber wheels at the 105 level now the C32 and C46, and of course, if you're shooting for the stars, you can get the C36 and C50 at Altegra and Dura-Ace levels. See them all at road.shimano.com. You know, I think for a lot of our listeners, they probably have no idea the amount of development time that goes into uh, a world-class road frame or track frame. Yeah. Um, These are lengthy projects. Uh, You know, a lot of companies will spend two years developing the new frame, whatever that frame is. One of the advantages here is that as with all small organizations, you do have the ability to be unusually nimble. Talk a little bit more about how you're able to move more quickly and how your previous expertise in terms of going into the wind tunnel and working with engineers who are doing CFD work where did you shave time? Well, the big thing was, um, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I owe a lot of that to what, what's gone in just the workplace the last few years that everyone has figured out how to work efficiently and quickly virtually. Um, you know, in, in, in previous projects, uh, even five years ago, uh, a big chunk of my time was spent in Asia. So I'd go to China or I'd go to Taiwan you know, sit at the factories, work work through the issues, the problems, overcome the uh, the challenges, and quite frankly, make compromises because the timelines are are, are what they are. And mm-hmm. and if we don't we don't get the result we want, um, you know, the we we got marketing pressure to to make sales to make things happen. You know, we got deadlines, so those those things need to get done. We came into this with the idea that it's a two year life cycle. You're right. So how can we how can we shorten that to six months? We basically have six months to get this thing done. And so fortunately there's, you know, there's just three of us, you know, there's not an HR team. There's not, you know, there's, there's not weeks off. There's, we're, we're solely focused on getting this done. Our, our partner that we're using, this is a uh, frame manufacturer I've used before. I've used it several times uh, in the past. Um, They've made uh, some, some, some 
rims. They've done uh, e-bike frames, uh, you know, road frames. So they already have a, a triathlon frames, time trial frames. They already had the expertise. Um, I was very fortunate to get hooked up with uh, uh, with Torre, a composite manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually make the raw material, and so we're using all Torre fabrics um, in our uh, in our bike. And so those yield a very consistent uh, results, very uh, kind of known qualities. And so the ex- sort of it's uh, what what we put into this into the the layup into the molds. We we have a, a very clear expectation of what's going to come out. And in a lot of manufacturing, the the frame makers they want to make they want to prepreg their own carbon. So they'll buy dry fiber. Um, they'll they'll press their own. Uh, resins and then they'll they'll give you their hey this is our carbon fiber this is what we're going to use and maybe they don't use it 100 percent. maybe they'll use little bits and pieces of uh, from torre or uh, one of the other carbon suppliers but um we wanted to have a more consistent control on it uh we we also have very clear stiffness goals so i have reams of data from you know from past projects on how stiff bicycles are mm-hmm. um on like what's that tipping point on a track bike fortunately you know, riders seldom complain about being too stiff. It's not like on the road or mountain bike where you want, you want, you know, laterally stiff and vertically, <laughs> vertically compliant. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but there is a tipping point from a safety and a strength standpoint. If you make something really, really stiff, it gets really brittle. And, uh, right. so there's, you know, there's, there's definitely areas we want to avoid on making them too brittle. And, uh, you know, the fork is certainly one of those areas. So, but a lot of that is is giving the information up front, and so we're not starting at ground zero from a from a manufacturing standpoint. Um, we're also willing to, again, because the six point eight kilogram uh, rule is still in effect. That wasn't one of the things that was adjusted, although it sounds like that was going to be on the on the table at one point. But um, on a track bike, we we don't have to shave every gram. In fact, there's areas like on the top tube and seat stays that I actually add material just to make the bike more crashable and travelable and are able to be traveled with. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of these, a lot of these world-class athletes, they're traveling, you know, to all of their major races. And so bikes go either in a soft case or maybe they go into a bike case, or if you're a big team, they might go onto a container and get shipped, but you know, they just get tossed around and banged around. They're hanging and there's no wheels in them. And, um, so it's very common in a, in a crash to see the top tubes break. It's also very common uh, on transport to see the seat stays break, and that's just from from being crushed from impact. It's not; mm-hmm. it's they don't fail under riding conditions. But you know, a lot of these guys have their Olympic dreams, you know, and hopes on uh, on a race. And if they go down, heck, our own uh, Jen Valente from the U.S. crashed in her Omnium bid in Tokyo, got back up and won a gold medal. So had her had her top two broke, it would have been <laughs> it have been a much uh, you know shorter uh, path and a certainly different outcome. So. Um, Things like that are are important, and uh, so we're not going to shave the last eighty grams off this thing. It's going to be it's going to be robust. Um, and are you using different Torre fibers throughout the frame? I mean, yeah. there's always been, from what I've seen, uh, a, a certain sort of recipe. We use these fibers here. We use some of this here. Um, is yeah, that I, are you doing the same sort of thing? We are, and I don't think that's that's not a big secret to use. You know, high modulus fibers where you really want the stiffness, but also some intermediate modulus and even low modulus materials where you want added strength and, uh, and durability. Um, you know, carbon fiber can be almost like Tupperware. You can you can lay it up and mold it to be very very tough and then uh, very resilient, but but a little bit compliant. Um, it can also be like glass. It can be unbelievably stiff, uh, but also unforgiving, and any movement will will it'll, it'll fracture and delaminate. So. 
Um, we've also done some work on the resin systems. That's another big advancement on the last, I'd say, like four or five years. Some of these crazy light frames you see coming out now. Um, yes, the, the carbon is important in what modulus you're using, whether it's this new T1100G that Torre has. Unbelievable stuff. It's uh, 70 grams per square meter, uh, which, is, which is crazy, crazy light for, mm-hmm. yep. uh, for a carbon material. And, um, but it's, it's also resin content. We're squeezing the, we're squeezing the resin content down to 23, 25% on these bikes where 35% would be commonplace, uh, even a few years ago. So, um, it's, it's, a, it's everything, it's everything. And a lot of that is just, it, there's less redundancy. There's not, there's not a bunch of area with, there's not areas of, of poor compaction, you know, the molding systems, we don't use air bladders anymore. There's essentially an internal mold and an external mold for all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it, it shortcuts some of that development. The other thing, Patrick, that's really sped this up is we just don't have a huge amount of resources to get this thing going. And so we, we kind of pooled our money and said, this is the risk. This is how much risk we're willing to take. And we made the size that fit the three of us. So we only opened the tooling on one frame size so far. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's where the Kickstarter kind of comes in. And, you know, we're making this bike because we want to make it. Like the, the three of us all ride and race track bikes and we enjoy it. It's a, it's a hobby of ours. but you know, I'm, I am, uh, I'm passionate about marginal gains. You know, I love, <laughs> I love chasing all that stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, and I compete in, and any successes I've had over the last 25 years, 30 years racing my bike, it's never been because I'm the strongest or fastest rider in the race. It's, uh, you know, I've prepared the, the equipment and I've, I've surveyed the courses or what have you. And so we've kind of taken that same approach. Like let's, Let's make a bike that has no compromises. What what can we do to make this thing the absolute fastest bike we can? Um, we did fall short, or I shouldn't say fall short. We did make the decision on not using proprietary equipment. You know, when I left, uh, when I was at Felt, um, they came up with a bike for the Pursuiters, and mm-hmm. uh, and this thing was like completely revolutionary. Uh, we had moved the crank arm to the other side of the bike, uh, because the airflow, the airflow was moving at a, uh, at, at a slower speed on the left side than it was on the right side on a track. Um, also when you're going up and down the track, you're moving the, you're moving the mass up and down less, uh, when it's on the left side than the right side. So, you know, which might be worth, we're talking tenths, you know, uh, of a second. <laughs> it's not, it's not substantial. Um, mm-hmm. all the, all the you know, the little spacers that you see on the sides of a hub, got rid of all those, the wheel, the hubs, the fork, everything was just as absolutely minimalist, as wide as it needed to be, um, axle spacing, uh, but it's all proprietary, you know? And so if you're that athlete and you show up to Egypt at the, to race the nation's cup and it's an outdoor venue, you don't have a front wheel to use now because the front wheels were all, all disc wheels. And so how do you, how do you get away with a spoked wheel now? Uh, you know, no one, no one has a spoked wheel that just fits that proprietary fork. Um, the same with the handlebars and cockpits, you know, the, if you look at the front, everything is, everything is one off, you know, there's no like profile design or vision, uh, handlebar that fits track riders, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the pursuit anymore. Everything has to be made customized, uh, to, to optimize their aero shape. And, you know, we didn't want to have a proprietary system that required our aero bars, that required our stem system, our fork system. Um, so we we made all these advancements and made this bike blazing fast without having to do that. Um, you know, one of the things we did at Felt when we made that bayonet fork was 
well, if the, if the UCI says that the tubes have to be three to one, well, we're going to make a three to one fork. And instead of putting it inside the head tube of a frame, we're going to put it on the front of the frame. So you can kind of stack those airfoils together. Uh, well, that, that's, not, that's not necessary anymore. Now we can take a, uh, a head tube that's 80 millimeters deep and, and put it in front of a down tube that's 80 millimeters deep and a top tube that's 80 millimeters deep. And so we've got these 160 millimeter deep tubes on the front of the bike. That's, that's you know, and, the, and it only has to be 25 millimeters wide. Uh, and so we've shaved down the front of the bike as, as narrow as we possibly can make it, but we were able to use a standard inch and eighth steer tube. So you can just put on a normal stem and a normal set of bars and off you go racing. And, you know, in, in the middle of the infield, if you want to swap your bike to, to a track, uh, or excuse me, a pursuit or individual position with aero bars, it doesn't require 45 minutes and six torque wrenches. You know, you just, you loosen the top cap, pull the stem bolts, swap the stem and, and, uh, and off you go. It's as simple as the, the beach cruiser in your, uh, in your garage. Mm. Um, same with the bottom bracket. It's a normal 68 millimeter threaded bottom bracket, no crazy press in bearings or unique, uh, unique design there. Um, and then the axles on the front and rear are just standard nine millimeter front, hundred millimeter spaced front axle and a one twenty ten millimeter rear. Um, so every wheel, you know, all the equipment that you love and, and trust and use, you, you can just marry that right to this new bike. You don't have to have a, a, a specific wheel set that, uh, that only works with our bike. And then in two years, when there's a faster wheel set, we don't have to come up with something new. You just, you can just uh, adapt to the new equipment uh, because it'll, it'll all bolt on as a standard equipment. Um, so, and yeah, I realize there's a, there are a few grams to be shaved with, uh, with through axles and some of the hidden, uh, uh, hidden attachment points that some of the, uh, federations are using on, uh, on these sort of magic and super bikes, but those, those can also be modified. You know, there's bolt on designs that, you know, run axle bolts from the, uh, uh, outside in, uh, mm-hmm. instead of nuts on the outside. So there's ways to shave some of that down, uh, when you get to that level and those last few, uh, bits of CDA are in your way from, uh, Olympic glory, but, yeah. uh, but we want it to be simple. It's a consumer product. You know, it's not just, it's not just for the elite racers. Let's, uh, you know, since we haven't done any of that and I, I know, uh, I'll end up running this whole, <laughs> this whole interview in a, in a separate program. It's just, it's too good. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> but what I want to do now is, uh, back up a little bit and, you know, you and I have known each other. God, what is it like 16, 17 years now? I think so. Yeah. You were <laughs> South Bay wheelman when I first you yeah. know, rolled into, into SoCal and, uh, you know, you were, you were instrumental in kind of introducing me to a lot of the, the ins and outs. And I think we worked maybe originally on the, uh, during the slipstream organization when, uh, when felt was part of that. And I think you were writing yes. about it and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, uh, it's been a long time. Maybe we shouldn't say how long. <laughs> <laughs> I think that means we're both getting old. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. So initially my work for felt was project based, um, you know, they, they needed somebody who could tell the story better, uh, of, you know, what was being done, uh, especially with the slipstream program, but you know, some of the other stuff as well. What I want to do for our listeners is talk about more of your background on the industry side. You okay, know? So sure. you were, you were the product manager for road, uh, at felt. Yep. And in that you oversaw, uh, not just the road frames and the track frames, but the development of uh, what was to that point in time, uh, 
the fastest aero road frame and then a an even faster aero road frame and then the tk1 which was the track frame you you've been talking about previously yeah uh and then you left felt and uh went to 3t um and uh you were part of the development of the strata yeah yep um what else do we need to share with people so that they get a sense of like, oh, this guy has been around and done things? Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I've been so lucky to, um, you know, to work with all stars. It's, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like I, I it's like I played basketball on the Bulls with Michael Jordan and then I went to the Lakers with Kobe. And then I, you know, now I'm working with LeBron James. It's just like I'm, I am not. I think you you well, you asked this earlier. Like you're not an engineer, so how are you getting this stuff done? Well, it's because I, I I've been so lucky to work with brilliant minds. So, um, like along the way, let's not let's let's make make it clear that no one person, you know, can no one person has done this uh, type of thing. So I felt I was super lucky yeah. to work with some brilliant guy, Jeff Socek, uh, you know, Ty Buckenberger. These these guys are. Um, they are leading their, their respective teams at other companies now. And I won't out them all necessarily, but these are the same guys that there are, you know, were responsible for, you know, developing the Santa or engineering, excuse me, the Santa Cruz that you're riding, the Cervellos mm-hmm. that you're riding. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I worked at 3T with, with Gerard Vrooman and that, uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a, a true enigma in the bike industry. He's a very brilliant minded guy, fearless, uh, with his ideas, you know, and, and doesn't, doesn't build on other success. He just builds on his own. Um, so it was very lucky to work with Gerard and, um, you know, and I can remember some of the early discussions about when we were developing the Strata, uh, you know, it was a one by road bike that, that, that immediately slices down your, your, your market from anyone that's looking for a road bike to very, 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 very few people that are looking for a road bike. Aero road in general is a smaller piece of the pie than, than all road bikes. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is really before gravel had kind of fractured it into a billion, in a billion <laughs> more pieces. Yes. But, uh, but that bike was a disruptor and, you know, honestly, if it had been released a, a year later, once SRAM had gotten the 12 speed access stuff out and, you know, now we're seeing 12 speed, um, and even 13 speed from, from Campanola, we're seeing that, uh, be used, being used by pro riders much more frequently than when we came to market, we had a, we had an 11 speed bike, 11 speed group. Um, that group was mechanical and, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone else was on 12 speed, you know, uh, or excuse me, 11 speed, or in, in some cases, 12, uh, with, with Campanola. So, um, you know, it was a, a bit early. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a Strata 2.0 or that, that type of thinking, uh, is going to be successful. I just think we're the rest of the industry from a component and wheel and everything else, tire standpoint needs to, needs to catch up and we're, we're almost there. Yeah. We're almost there. It, um, I mean, I think part of what I find so compelling about talking with you is, okay, fine. You're not an engineer, but you've worked with a whole lot of them and you've seen them come up against interesting engineering problems and come up with interesting solutions yeah so yeah. you know in hollywood if hollywood was telling the story you would be the aerodynamicist and the layup engineer and 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 it, right. they would they would conflate all of those roles into one dude you know it's like <laughs> it's like dustin hoffman flying a helicopter in some thriller 
you know, it's like, right. Do we really believe that? Um, but your ability to aggregate this knowledge into a, a much larger perspective and knowledge base, you've come up with some really, really very creative and innovative solutions. I mean, um, uh, subcompact. That yeah. was that was one of your ideas. Yeah, uh, yeah. going down as th- as far as a, a thirty in a ring. Um, you know, forty six thirty. I the moment I saw that, I didn't need any more explanation. Um, <laughs> you know, it just it made implicit sense. But also, I'm reminded of the uh, the seat post uh, on uh, the Arrow Road frame uh, at Felt. Um, the bike that I had that was stolen. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Your AR. That was, yeah. that was another, you know, um, with carbon manufacturing, you'll get, you'll get different, uh, tolerances that sort of stack up. So one of the challenges is how do you get an arrow seat post to stay put into a, uh, into an arrow frame. And one of the ways is just to make it super, super thick and make the clamp really burly and, and you just sort of smash it in place and it doesn't move. Well, in order to make a bike ride good, uh, one of the things you want is you want a seat post that has a little bit of compliance to it. And uh, so the brilliant minds at felt, you know, they figured out, well, if we make the wall thickness super thin and we put the clamp inside the post and we basically pinch the seat post between the clamp inside it and the frame surface, the frame seat tube itself, um, we can make it unbelievably thin. And so and so compliant, you can literally crush it in your hand like it'll it's springy yeah. in your hand, like a like a, uh, a Pepsi bottle, you know, or a, a two liter bottle. So that was, uh, that was super brilliant. And we took some of that thinking, you know, I, all this, like you mentioned, like each one of my steps along the way throughout my career, my, you know, dozen plus years at felt and, uh, you know, two, three years at, at, uh, at three T, um, we took that along with us, you know, and I was, I was, I mean, I was a kid in the candy store when I was working for specialized, we had a wind tunnel and, uh, you know, and so I would bribe the wind tunnel guys with pizza or beer or whatever it took to, to get over there and make you know, and I'd get on my bike and say, well, you know, let's try this, let's try this skin suit. Let's try this helmet. And, um, you know, cause again, I'm, I, I was still a hobbyist amateur bike rider and I was, this is the equipment I'm going to use, but let's see what, a, what I can do to make myself a little bit faster. So I'd learn about shrugging your shoulders and keeping your head down and, and, uh, and, and, and finding those, that hidden speed that, uh, that would serve me later when I'm looking at, okay, now that we're developing bikes that put you in that position, What's the ideal shape? What, how wide do the handlebars need to be? Um, so, so, so just stuff like that, it all just sort of adds up. You just build this book of experience. And so each time I develop a, uh, a, a frame or each time I'm developing a new product, I can bring all of that experience. It's not just my own, but it's the, you know, the dozen engineers that felt. It's the dozen uh, 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 guys that, uh, that specialize, like Chris Yu and Mark Cody and Ingmar mm-hmm. Youngnickel and uh, I mean, yeah. just, you know, they're, they're just brilliant, brilliant guys that are, have also been bitten by the bicycle bug, um, you know, and, and, uh, their contribution to the world is, is bicycles. It's not, uh, you know, satellites or, I mean, these guys are, are super, super smart. They can solve any problem. Um, so that's one of the things a- I've, I've found super compelling about specialized having their own wind tunnel is instead of, you know, going down to San Diego and renting time, you've got these engineers who are only looking at bicycle stuff being blown they're they're not switching to something from boeing or lockheed uh it's all bike stuff and so the sort of institutional memory they're building up there um that's very curious i'm i'm i would love to know more about the sorts of things that they've 
that they figured out that haven't been released to the world. Yeah, it it was pretty surprising to me when we were developing Aero Wheels, for example. Um, you know, some of the guys in the tunnel, we 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 put different size wheels, or, or excuse me, we put different size tires on these wheels, and the mm-hmm. guys in the tunnel will be like, "Oh, that's not going to work good." You know, they just they just know by looking at the shape of the tread that as it comes off the casing, and, or you know, or even just the inflated tire, they can look at it and say, "Oh, that's you know that that's that shape's really round. It's going to be a bad bad leading edge." Uh, and sure enough, it goes in the tunnel. And like you said, it's just because they've done it a hundred times, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, there's those little cues that you can look for, but uh you know again they they uh they have a tool that no other brand has and they use it i mean they were using it for developing cooling and helmets you think well, mm-hmm. how would they, how would that be an aerodynamic story well you know the the more airflow through the helmet the the more <laughs> the more you can measure that like you can you can measure that with sensors inside the helmet you know uh they they were looking at how do you make a mountain bike faster and and well that's that's arguably not going to come from faster wheels, right? You got this big knobby aero or, or un aero tire spinning around. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but things like skin suits and, uh, and, and teaching those riders, Hey, if you get your, your chin tucked down and shrug your shoulders and move your hands and your elbows in, you know, you're saving yourself a hundred Watts. So when you're coasting down the hill, do that, mm-hmm. you know, do that, put yourself in that position. Maybe you can't hold it for the duration of the race. Maybe it's only a few minutes, but it's going to be seconds at the end. You know, and so that all goes into the it all goes into the think tank that is that that brand and uh, and really anyone that's walked through those doors has access to that uh, that level of experience. And so I'm I'm very fortunate to be able to take some of that away from, with uh, you know some of that what I've learned there uh, away and, and apply some of those those principles here. Um, okay, so, now yeah. uh, the other the other not the flip side, but the other piece of this is you know you talk about yourself as a hobbyist bike racer. Um, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who did you ride the team pursuit with once? Well, once, <laughs> and again, this is one of my, uh, and meddled with, yeah, yeah. This is one of the benefits of working for, uh, a, a team sponsor. Uh, when we supported the slipstream organization with, with felt bicycles, um, they had some amazingly fast athletes uh, on the track. I mean, Brad Huff and, and, uh, Michael Creed and, uh, Colby Pierce, Daniel Holloway, Taylor Finney, like the just, I mean, the who's who of, of American track racing in the early 2000s. And um, we, we, we were literally promoting this new bike and, and I was, you know, dressed up in my, my khakis and polo shirt. And these are athletes in their Lycra. And um, as we were nearing the U.S. National Championships, Bradley Huff had this horrific crash. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube, uh, Tour of Missouri. Uh, I forgot what stage it was, but, and he's, he's just seen like, you know, cartwheeling through the air, uh, ground the field. sky, ground sky. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. And, um, anyway, he was on the team pursuit team and I uh, didn't see he was out. He wasn't able to race. So I told those guys, you know, and, uh, Hey, I, I'll, I'll race the team pursuit with you. I've done some team pursuit riding, you know, and they're like, okay, dude, like, first of all, <laughs> stay in your lane. You know, like, <laughs> We got to be nice to you because you're our bike sponsor, but, but thanks, but no, thanks. Uh, but no, really they were super gracious and said, all right, well, we're going to do some work behind the motor. You know, why don't you show up and if you don't embarrass yourself or put us in, put our lives in danger, you know, maybe we'll let you roll around for a couple of, a couple of laps. And they did. And so I was able to earn a national championship largely because I was on the start line with Taylor Finney, uh, and Daniel Holloway and, and, uh, and Colby Pierce. And, uh, uh, you know, they felt sorry for an old guy, but 
Uh, but yeah, it's been, that was a highlight. You know, I was able to rate, I, I won my first district championship on the track with, uh, uh, this other guy, uh, uh, Frankie Andreo, he was kind enough to <laughs> step out of retirement and jump on, uh, on the boards with me and race, uh, uh, race the Madison. Um, I think he was in the Olympics in 88 and 92. So it was, it was good. It was good to have someone of that level, uh, racing with me. And, uh, and then just this last year, uh, I had, uh, you know, masters world champion, uh, Jeremy Cattell joined me, uh, in Detroit for, uh, the Madison national championships. And so we were able to come away with a win largely because he's just so unbelievably strong and, and, uh, just doesn't make mistakes. Madison is a, really a lot, a lot of times is a lot about who, who makes the fewest mistakes and he makes none. And so we were able to come out of the top, which is, which was a cool homecoming for me. I'm originally from the area. So that was great to, to do that. But you know, it's a, it's a sport that I love, uh, but it's not something that, you know, you read about former pro athletes that, that get into the industry. I, I, I was never, I was never that good. You know, I was never good enough to, to be considered a, you know, uh, someone that's experienced in racing, uh, would be notable or, or bring anything to the table. You know, no one's coming to me for advice in terms of how to go, uh, how to go fast from a fitness standpoint, although I might be able to tweak their bike or their position a little bit and improve them. But, uh, but humility has always been, uh, pretty charming. Uh, but you know, when I was working at felt, you know, driving down four days a week and we would do our lunch rides Everybody on those lunch rides was pretty fit. Yeah. Um, I was going all right back then. And anytime you wanted to, you could ride away from the bunch of us. So, you <laughs> well, know, that's a, a, that's, a little perspective on there. That's that's my preference. My preference is to race with a, a bunch of a uh, bunch of guys that have to put on a shirt and tie, you know, or at least a, at least a shirt and uh, <laughs> and ride around uh, in circles for an hour. You know, that that would be great. But I've been so fortunate with this industry to travel the world. And see what true uh, athletic achievement is on a bicycle, and uh, and that's where the humility comes from. It's like you, you see what these guys do. It's like oh, uh, they I can do for a minute what they can do for an hour. You know, it's just it's unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable. And again, that's one of the things that you know the depth of your experience gives you a perspective um, that really values what it is they know. Uh, what it is they've they've worked to achieve, um, and it seems to me that you're better suited to that than a whole lot of guys I've met. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm a bike fan. I I don't I don't consider it a chore to get on an airplane and go fly to some event in Belgium or France to you know to work with a team or work with a specific athlete to uh, you know to either resolve their issue or hey we're we're working on overcoming the problems that you've had at Perry Roubaix or we're working on overcoming the problems that you had um, at this Olympic triathlon you know and and uh, so what can we do and that's the other thing is that you know I've been forced fortunate enough to to be immersed in all the different arenas it's been track racing it's been the you know we felt won two Olympic gold medals on, uh, in triathlon. Uh, it, uh, they won, uh, they said world records in the, on the velodrome. They, they won stages of the tour of Spain, they, the tour de France. It, it's just, you know, you've, your, your products get used on that stage and it, it's humbling. It's, uh, it, it's addictive. You, you want to get back there, you know? And, mm -hmm. uh, e even if I didn't do anything except decide what color the derailleur hanger was going to be, I still feel like I was part of some of those projects, you know? So it's, uh, uh, it's intoxicating. And that's, that's where I'm at with this project. I mean, we're, we're making a bike cause the three of us are, uh, 
our, our bike racers and we want a faster bike than what we're currently using. And we say, well, psh, all of us are on, I'm on a felt, you know, uh, Steven's on a, on a Cervelo P, uh, T4. Uh, that's mm-hmm. all, that's all three to one airfoil stuff. It's all older, older technology. And, um, so we know we can make something faster, so let's just do it. I could, yeah, I could probably save up some, some money over <laughs> the next couple of years, skip some mortgage payments and, and buy a, a hope or a Lotus or, uh, you know, one of those $20,000 wonder bikes. Uh, I think an Argon 18 is about 10 grand. It looks about 10 grand. Or we could all trip chip in our 10 grand and just make our own bike. That's faster than all of them. Um, and so that's what we did. And then, and hopefully we can get, uh, we can get a couple athletes to, to jump on board and, uh, you know, use them, uh, the upcoming world championships here in Glasgow. And we've got a Kickstarter going to get the rest of the sizes funded. Um, we've got, we've got a large one done now. We're working on the, the small and the medium, you know, they're drawn, they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. But, um, but bicycle tubing or bicycle tooling rather is, is exceptionally expensive. It's, uh, you know, it's about $15,000 to get the first size done. And then you can use some of the tooling on, on different sizes. Things like the dropouts <laughs> and forks are the same across um, all frame sizes. But, um, but yeah, the front triangle molds, um, those all need to be, all need to be cut. And, and a lot of times, you know, the internal molds, the expanded polystyrene molds that get made, those, we have to make several of those. They get, they get tweaked and modified. And um, so anyway, it's a big process and it's a huge investment. And we're not a bike company. We're just, we're just doing you know, we're just doing this. I guess we are a bike company, but it's just the three of us. And and so there's not, you know, we're not, we're not in reinvesting profits from, you know, the last, the pandemic sales of, uh, of record profits that every other bike company has had the last few years. This is just, you know, the UCI rule was changed January 1st. And that's, that's when we kind of pulled the lever and said, let's make this happen. Uh, so the Kickstarter is live. Yep. We just turned it on today. Today is, uh, May 16th. Awesome. And it will run for one month. Yeah. One month. Uh, we are super lucky the first day we were over, I think we got about 50% of that funded already. Um, and that's going to, that's going to pay <laughs> wow. for the, yeah. Yeah. So we're happy about that. That's going to pay for the tooling. It's going to get the four sizes done. Um, like I said, we'll get this, uh, we'll get these largest, uh, shipped out and, um, you know, and then we gotta, we gotta get busy with the UCI. We gotta get that sticker done. And, um, you know, like there's a, there's all these rules about the Olympic equipment uh, because the people, the, the IOC doesn't want people to show up the night before with on something new. So your product has to be used a year before the Olympics and it has to be commercial, commercially available in the year. So by January, the commercial available, we're going to, we're going to knock that out of the park. That'll be no problem, but um, getting someone to use, it's going to be a, a big challenge. A lot of these athletes have a lot riding on it. You know, they're, they're competing <laughs> in their own countries to be the best. You know, there's a lot of these countries only get to send one person or maybe two, and so, uh, it's a gamble, it's a gamble to get on new equipment, you know? And so we're going to have to show the data, uh, which we've got lots of data, we're, but we're going to have to show them, uh, how, how much faster it is. And for those that are technically minded, I think they'll be able to see into it. And, and everyone knows that the three to one restriction has been a, a limiting factor for just how fast you can push the envelope and, uh, and how fast you can get a bike to go. But, um, we're going to break, we're going to shatter, <laughs> shatter that ceiling. And will, will you be the first to the market with, uh, a design, uh, made with, uh, these new rules? It's hard to definitively say yes. I, as, as I'm aware, there's no other bikes that have been introduced that, that have the things that we've been able to bring to market. Now, um, they're the widely spaced fork is something that hope had, uh, on their, um, so the hope Lotus kind of super bike that the British mm-hmm. team used. Uh, I've heard rumors of other uh, companies uh, adapting new forks. I think that uh, Koga uh, had a widely spaced fork um, that was retrofitted to their their previous frame design. Um, mm-hmm. 
but again, it kind of goes back to, okay, great. Uh, how do I buy a Koga? You know, how, how do I buy a, a, a hope? I don't, I don't even know how to transact that, you know, where we're, we're approaching this as a, um, if we sold a thousand of these frames, it wouldn't be a viable business model. It, it's just, the market is just too small, you know? So none of us are going to retire by doing this project. This is, this is from the outset, it was going to be, gosh, I hope we can break even <laughs> on, <laughs> on getting this stuff done, you know? Um, and so, you know, there, there's, there's just not a lot of profit to be made, uh, regardless of how many you sell or what price you put it at. And so we priced it very reasonably. We're, we're, you know, the, the, one of the smart guys I used to work with used to say, good design doesn't have to cost anything. If you make the right shape, it, it's, it doesn't cost you more than making the wrong shape, you know, especially if you're chasing after some aerodynamic stuff. And there's, and that's true to a certain degree. I mean, we are really pushing the boundaries on uh, sharp trailing edges and, and things that the frame manufacturer was just absolutely, absolutely livid about, you know, they, they, they like to make nice rounded raw, you know, uh, gradual radiuses like a four or five six millimeter radius on these mm -hmm. tubes and uh and we're at one millimeter radius on a lot of the on a lot of the tube shapes to keep the aero properties that we want so um there are some definitely some manufacturing challenges that that we had to overcome and um and really new manufacturing techniques things that i learned uh when i was working on uh component design had nothing to do with frame design but on some of the components that had to have really sharp trailing edges um we said hey we're going to make our frames like this and okay, like I said earlier, maybe it's an 80 gram weight penalty, but we don't care about 80 grams on a track bike. The bike's going to be six, you know, with light parts, it'll be 6.8 kilos. That's, 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 that's easily achieved with the, uh, with the current, the current frame design and frame weights. Very cool. Uh, so the first size that you're making is your size. This yes. is a, a, how, how long, uh, talk to me in reach and stack or, or C tube length oh, and top tube length. Perfect. Perfect that you put me on a spot here because I don't I don't have it memorized, but I can get you all that information. Give me well, three, 30 seconds what, here. Six one. Yeah, six one in a, in a little bit. It goes down every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in touch. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll be on a large uh, with a longish stem, probably a 140 stem. Um, and I'm currently on some 35 centimeter bars as well. And uh, so that has a 520 stack and a 450 reach. Uh, 630 front center. And for our listeners who may not know bike, uh, bike fit numbers all that well. Yeah. The average road frame people are on, they're riding a 42 centimeter bar. Right. That's pretty, that's pretty standard. Seven centimeters say. narrower. Right. You yeah. put me on a 40 and I feel like I'm squeezing through somebody's walk-in closet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a, it's, it's an unsettling thing to go, you know, and then get out of the saddle and, uh, you know, kind of bang, bang bars and a sprint. It's, it's definitely a different, um, it's definitely a different feeling. And, and like I said, the sports just sort of evolved that, um, you know, you just, you just need to be as aerodynamic as possible to punch through the, the wind, you know, even the, even the racing that I've done here locally, it's, uh, it's a considerable advantage. You know, I, I still run a power meter on my bike and, and we'll go out and it's, you know, you're still saving like 70 Watts when you fold yourself in half and tuck your elbows in and get your head down. And it's, it's a massive difference. 70 um, Watts you're saving. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Um, wow. Okay. So, and you have, um, you've got all the files to cut tools for small, medium and extra large. Correct. 
what sort of sales numbers do you have to hit to make those reality? Well, again, um, I mean, we're, we're kickstarting um, to 70,000 uh, or 75,000 um, to get the tools cut and the material paid for. And that's going to pay for the, that's going to pay for the, the tooling to be opened. And it's going to pay for all of the frames that will have been sold uh, through the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, and that just basically gets us back to zero, <laughs> you know? So, so, so people can order a small right now. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, they can okay. order a small okay. right now and, uh, and they can back that size. In fact, the more people that do that, the more likelihood it, it is that it's going to get done sooner. And we're going to open the sizes based on whatever, whatever the most is sold. Obviously the large is already done and it'll be a race to see if we need to set, uh, to set up the medium next or to set up the extra large next, um, you know, and all those, all those tooling priorities to, to get those sizes done. So, um, wow. we know that we'll miss the world championship. So I'm sorry if you're listening and you're, you're planning on using this in Glasgow, uh, and you need a medium or you need an XL, I'm sorry, we're, we're not going to be able to supply to you, but we will have it ready by Paris. And the UCI doesn't say you have to write race every size. They just say you have to race one size. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've got the, uh, they've got the drawing we're waiting on their, their approval. Um, you know, we're right up against the edge of the rules, but we really haven't done anything that's uh, sort of questionable. I don't expect to be sort of thrown out of court <laughs> on a technicality on this. Um, you know, the bounding boxes are clearly drawn at 80 and, and we fit into all the UCI templates. So it's just a matter of, uh, of getting through their process. And uh, for somebody who might actually want to order one of these, what's what's it take to pledge? The pledge is... Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's, it's graduated. Uh, I think $3,200 gets you, uh, gets you a frame right now. Um, and I think $35 gets you a t-shirt. <laughs> so that's where we're at. But as we sell more, um, we also have a handlebar and stem that we've designed, um, a, uh, an aerodynamic handlebar and stem. It's, uh, uh, not unlike, you know, uh, the sort of the arrow shaped base bar and, and stem that you've seen from other manufacturers. Um, again, it uses a conventional inch and eighth steer, inch and eighth steer tube. Um, and so if we get the, if we get enough, uh, bikes sold, then we'll have the tooling money to open that as well. And we'll make that available to our backers first. Um, so yeah, it's on, uh, it's on Kickstarter search for Strom S T R O M M. And, uh, we're the only one on there. <laughs> so, uh, it'll be easy to spot. And, uh, and I'm also, you know, active on, uh, on our social site asking, we, we've had so many people just flooded with questions, um, both, both very uh, helpful, I think to other listeners. And also of course it's the internet. So you've got uh, plenty of that, uh, that fodder as well, but, uh, we get through a lot, a lot, a lot of that, a few hundred of those questions a day. So if you have questions, certainly reach out, um, you know, find me or find Strom on the, on socials and I'll be more than willing to guide you. Awesome. Dave, I am so excited for you. I really am. Yeah, this is <laughs> so neat. You're afflicted with the same thing we are. And, you know, and I've, I've often cheered for these corner, sort of small efforts that, uh, you know, that go against um, logic and reason you know, to do something like this. But that's really where the market or the industry has, has settled on. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at the clothing companies, the, the riders, you know, they, they might have a name brand on their sleeve, but that that's all bespoke one-off clothing at the, at the, at the pro level. Mm-hmm. Um, that's either tailored to fit them specifically, or it's uh, you know, it's a buyer racer, buyer racer suit with their sponsor logos on it. Or, um, and it's the same thing with handlebars. As I said, it's, you know, uh, there's, there's very little in, especially in the world of track that would be considered mainstream. You know, you don't see uh, a, a Trek 
rolling around the boards with Bontrager wheels on it. That's just not, that's just <laughs> not what Trek does. Um, and the market is just, it's small. It's, it's probably not something they could do lucratively or profitably. And so you don't see them enter the market. And so it's left with these sort of small garage, um, builders, uh, you know, guys like watch shop and, uh, drag to zero and, you know, these small brands that are just really pushing the envelope and they're delivering on, on products that have a need, but it's a, such a small niche. It's not unlike what we saw in the early nineties with mountain bikes when you know, the, the, um, the tech industry had a little bit of a slide and, uh, and all these, you know, aerospace level CNC shops were spitting out mountain bike parts, yeah. you know, in the, in the heyday of CNC machine parts for mountain bikes, you mm-hmm. know, it, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't Shimano cranks, right. It was Grafton or, uh, you know, one of those brands. And, yeah. um, and so that's, that's where we're at. Although we're working, we're playing with carbon these days, not, a, not in CNC aluminum, but mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's really what's, what's viewed as the pinnacle in, uh, in terms of performance and equipment at the, at the, certainly in the track regime. Very cool. All right, yeah. man. Uh, thank you so much for the time. Appreciate the opportunity, uh, and, Patrick. Uh, it's always good to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. I never talk to you enough. <laughs> I feel the same way. It's always good to always good to catch up. We could yeah. spend hours talking about other things as well, I'm sure. As we have in the past. <laughs> yeah. Super Dave. Thanks, man. Thank you, sir. I want to thank our guest, Dave Casel of Strom Cycling, for joining me on the Paceline Tandem. You can learn more about the Strom frame at Kickstarter.com. There will be a link in our show notes. That's a wrap for this show. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, I hope you'll leave the show a good review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady, inviting you to enjoy the ride. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. (laughs) 